Welcome to the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd, Pelham, Alabama podcast. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Oh, Father, you have laid out your ways and your laws and commands. And we, O oh Lord, being sinners, we have fallen away, sought after our own desires and our own hearts. We've confused ourselves by thinking that the way of our own living is your ways, instead of being humbled and knowing that you are the Father who are loving us by teaching us your ways, disciplining us and bringing us closer to you. Help us, O oh Lord, to have ears to hear, be drawn back to you, O oh Lord. Grant us, O oh Lord, repentful hearts and help us in this mid-time of Lent as we continue to press forward to keep resting in thee. Truly let our hearts rest in you, O oh Lord, and fill up the holes that we have that can be only be filled by your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. To everything there is a season for every time a purpose under heaven. Solomon tells us this in the beginning of chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. He continues in verse 3, there's a time to break down, a time to build up. Jesus breaks down the rampant corruption and the defilement of his holy temple in today's gospel reading. He does so in order to build us up with worship and spirit and truth. To build us up through resurrection of the true temple, his body. Jesus is visiting his temple in today's reading. Yes, his temple, for he is the word of God who even commanded Solomon to build it in the first place. That temple made of stone made of mortar, that permanent structure to replace the tabernacle, the tent, if you recall, the tent of presence that God commissioned Moses and the Levites to use to offer up sacrifices until the only sacrifice that could truly take away our sins arrived. And today is that day when the very living God, the sacrifice himself, the true great high priest for us all, enters into his temple. When the permanent sacrifice for all sins, of all errors, of all trespasses, as we heard in today's catechism, enters into the temporary temple. Yes, temporary, which would surprise the Jews of that day because the temple is merely a mirror reflecting the heavenly reality, the unseen world. For God dwells not in brick and mortar, that's built by flawed men. He dwells in the eternal temple of heaven, which shall unite here with the earthly realm at Christ's glorious descent, his return to earth at the last day. The stone temple that was built by man, it could only be temporary, for it never saw a man with pure hands and with a pure heart offer a pure sacrifice. Nor could the cattle that were being offered there in the temple ever constitute that pure sacrifice that would truly and permanently wipe away our sins. And so therefore God the Father sent God the Son to be our great high priest and to be our unblemished sacrificial lamb. To be our Passover. And so when we enter into John 2 in verse 13, as Jesus is walking into the temple complex, he is acutely aware 
that he is the fulfillment of everything the temple represents. Because Jesus is the living temple of God. He's the incarnation, the enfleshment of God himself. Jesus taking on our mortal flesh that Christmas morning, and he is God becoming our sacrifice, becoming our great high priest, becoming our temple within flesh and blood, the same flesh and blood that we have. And so therefore, when God himself, when Jesus the Christ visits his temple for the first time since his ministry has begun, he finds that his temple has become a source for prophets instead of heeding the written prophets. There's money changers in the outside part of the complex of the temple. And they're taking the Roman coins, the denarius, They're taking foreign coins from various empires, all coming from these Jewish pilgrims who are coming from across the known world. These Jewish pilgrims who have to exchange the money in their hands for Jewish shekels so they can pay the temple tax that goes back to the Old Covenant. That doesn't sound too bad, you may be thinking to yourself. They're just exchanging money back and forth. But this isn't simply a currency exchange. It's exchanging the currency of coins with faces of emperors, of pagan rulers, for Jewish shekels that have no man's image because they do not want to violate that second commandment. Well, again, that's that's not so bad, you may be saying to yourself. That, That makes sense. But here's the kicker. The money changers are doing this all within the temple complex, and they're charging outrageous rates to convert those currencies of the pilgrims just so the pilgrims can pay the temple tax under the Old Covenant. In other words, they're profiteering over the pilgrims who have been traveling for hundreds, maybe even thousands of miles, who are simply seeking to do their duty to God and to offer worship to Him. That's not the only thing that Jesus sees walking into the complex. Instead, He also sees a vast array of, of cattle. He sees sheep, oxen, pigeons, each of them fulfilling sacrifices that are required under the old covenant for our sins. But they're not being brought into the temple to be sacrificed. Not yet. Instead, they're being sold to be sacrificed. And likely, too, at an outrageous price to those visiting pilgrims who could not afford to bring the cattle with them on their long journeys. There's a great irony here of this buying and selling of the sacrifices while the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is there in the temple itself. Only to see it being polluted by the filth of these animals being sold for profit within the temple. And Jesus will have none of it. He immediately gets to work overturning the money changers' tables. He uses the whips of cords to drive out the cattle from the temple complex. He orders those who are selling the pigeons, take those cages, get them out of here from the temple. These profiteers have polluted and have defiled the temple grounds. They've even taken up room on the outermost part of the temple. That outermost part which is known and reserved for the Gentiles, for the God-fearers who seek the one true God. And instead of being a house of worship, instead of being a place where the Gentile God-fearers can praise and pray to God, bring light to us Gentiles, instead we see a crowd of Jewish pilgrims amongst with local Jewish people who are extorting each other and are profiteering and even taking up too much space and driving out Gentiles 
seeking after the one true God. Now the Jews who are watching this unfold, watching Jesus driving out these men, driving out the cattle, driving out the money changers, and flipping over tables, they're in shock. As many people are in shock when they first read the scriptures and they read this account of Jesus being righteously angered. They, they, they can't believe what they're seeing. And for some of us, we read this and we can't believe what we're reading. It seems that no one seems to be aware of the problem of buying and selling in God's temple. No one seems to be aware of the problem of taking up space where only the Gentiles can worship the Lord. It's the closest they can get. They can't go any farther than this outside court of the Gentiles around the temple complex. All this desire for profit ignores the words of the prophet Malachi, who in chapter 3, the prophet Malachi, he predicted Christ's judgment on his temple. He says the following, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in which you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Today's gospel is not about us. It's not about justifying your anger problem or my anger problem in the name of righteous anger. As John's gospel records later, echoing the psalmist, there's none righteous, there's none good except the one whom the Father has sent. Jesus, God the Son. Jesus is the one who has the righteous anger. He is the one who the very people of God entrusted with his commandments. He is the one who delivered these commandments and is now being entrusted to fulfill those commandments that we just heard a moment ago. He's the one who gave the instructions on how to worship in the temple, how to build the temple. And the Jewish people could not endure his first coming. Will we be able to endure when he returns? Today's gospel is about Jesus cleansing the old dispensation in preparation for the new. Jesus purifies and he cleanses the old covenant worship as he prepares his own body to be the final sacrifice for the old covenant and the eternal sacrifice in the new covenant. Malachi continues in his own prophecy about God's day of judgment, by stating that God's messenger, that is the Christ, the anointed one, Jesus our Lord, is, quote, is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. The gospel in Malachi's prophecy is about cleansing, not only the outer temple, the temple of God, but cleansing ourselves, O church, the temple of God in which the Spirit of God now dwells if we are of faith in Christ. For Jesus explained to these astonished Jews, and he explains to us today Destroy this temple, talking about his own body, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jewish listeners didn't understand that Jesus, God incarnate, has visited his temple and has pronounced judgment. The one whose very own body is the true temple of God. He has come, and his presence will break us. After he has broken his own body, after he has broken the curtain into two, that same curtain where no Gentile could get into, where no Jewish man could get into, only the great high priest once a year that separates the innermost part of the temple from the presence of God, from where the Ark of the Covenant once dwelt, 
so they could go in and make the purification one time a year. That curtain is torn in two because Christ breaks his body upon the cross, and now he breaks our own body to pour his spirit into us as living temples of God. God's presence will dwell within his people and does dwell within his people of faith because Jesus broke his body to pour his spirit upon each of us who believe in faith of the words he said today, his death and his resurrection. And Jesus tells his very own people in this testimony today that he is God. For he chastised, he chastised his people for, quote, for making my father's house a house of trade. And he tells them, tear down this body and I'll raise it up in three days. But the people will not listen. They will not heed Jesus' words. Will we? John writes in verse 24, that despite many people believing in him while he performed miracles, quote, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about mankind for he himself knew what was in man. This should sound familiar for our Sunday school class just talking about Article 9 on original sin. We're fallen. We're sinful. We have many trespasses, as we just heard in our catechism. We tell Jesus, just give us a sign, O Lord. Give me a miracle, and then I'll believe. And what do we see all throughout Scripture? What do we see in our own lives if we're honest with ourselves? Even when he does provide us a sign, even when he does provide a miracle, even when he answers a desperate prayer, we desert him before the cross. We turn our back on him. And that's exactly why the cross is necessary. Because of how broken we are. How sinful we are. How because we're so bent over in our own evil ways, looking in at our own heart's desires, too ungrateful to God to even heed the commandments that he wrote with his very finger and gave to Moses and to his people. We're too blind, if we're honest. We're too deaf to hear or to see that God's worship is carried out the way he prescribed in his very own covenant. And this is why Jesus visits his temple. This is why Jesus cleanses his temple, preparing it to receive the sacrifice necessary to heal our blind, our deaf, our mute, and our lame selves. Which also reminds me of Malachi's words, where God chastises his people for cheating him under the old covenant because they were offering blind and deaf and blemished and lame animals for sacrifice instead of the firstborn and the unblemished Cattle that was called by God. Instead of the firstborn, instead of the unblemished lamb, they go and seek the one that's not well, that cannot see, that no one wants. Give that one to God, but save the good one for myself. That's how selfish the people of God have become. And friends, that's how selfish we are as well. Not offering our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving as we pray each Sunday we gather together, but offering something lukewarm, something tepid, something that, as Christ tells us in Revelation, he will spit us out, and rather that we were warm or cold, not lukewarm. 
But today, O church, today the unblemished Lamb of God has visited his temple to prepare it to receive the sacrifice that God demands and God will provide. The sacrifice that we're called to render to God now, a broken and contrite heart as we heard on Ash Wednesday. We heard in Psalm 51 something that only God can give us, poor, weary sinners. Our Father looks down from heaven and out of great love. He sends his only son to die and erase our sins. He pours out his graceful spirit upon us so that we may become the living temples of the spirit of God and finally able to offer the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. It brings to my mind as I was reading Malachi today or excuse me, this week, the words that he also says in chapter three, where he continues on, where God promises that the son, that Jesus He's like a refiner's fire and a fuller soap. A refiner's fire and a fuller soap. And what will he do? Malachi tells us he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. Church, we have been enrolled into that new priesthood, that priesthood of all believers, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb who visits his temple, refined by his pure fire to remove the impurities of our sins. That's what Lent is about. It's not about a diet plan for the next 40 days. It's about giving up sins, denying ourselves, taking up our cross. Lord, refine me. It's going to hurt. I don't want to do it, but I know I need it. Help me, O oh Lord. I'm too lazy to stick through with it. Help me, refine me, purify me. And Hebrews 12, 29 tells us who is God and how is he? He is like a consuming fire, the refining fire, taking us who are just rocks of hard clay, but there's a little gold that he's planted in us, a little silver he put in there for us, and he's saying, I'm calling it forth, I'm calling it out, I'm going to burn off the unholy, I'm going to refine you, I'm going to take that impurity, let it rise to the top, and I will cast it out. And so in the glorification, on the day to come, on that last day, when Christ is risen, when Christ has come again, when we are risen, he shall burn off the unholy, he shall shake it off, and all that will be left is himself. We shall dwell in him and he shall dwell in us. Christ shall be all in all, purifying and refining us on that great last day. And that's why the completion of all things, when Malachi's own prophecy is completely fulfilled, those outside of Christ, when they experience this consuming fire of God's presence, they feel it as judgment. For God is beholding himself fully for who he is, coming before us and uniting heaven to earth, while those who are clothed by Christ, those who are repentful, those who are saying, I need your will to be done, take it and make it into my will. Fill me with your spirit. I cannot do it without you, O Lord. Those will be refined. They will be glorified to be like Christ is right now, resurrected in the body, sanctified forever. In Ecclesiastes, Back in chapter 3, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 4, Solomon writes, There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And this Lenten journey is one of weeping and mourning over our sin. But there is laughter and there is dancing just around the corner. 
Jesus is bound for the cross, but will never be held by the grave. Christ goes into the earth to storm hell's foundations and returns to bring laughter to Mary's tears outside the garden. What appears to the whole world as defeat is the victory of God himself, just as God the Son predicted to those observing him, turning over the tables in his temple. Christ is gathering his flock, the very same flock that loves to scatter and desert him. So let us go with him. Let us complete the journey to Jerusalem so that our tears might turn to joy on Easter morning. But for now, we struggle. Or we should. We should be struggling with the flesh against our own desires. And struggle is not a struggle alone, but a struggle with the saints. A struggle, more importantly, with God himself within us. Because for now, we offer up ourselves to the Lord. Take us, Lord, and use us. And then he feeds us with that perfect sacrifice, which Christ Jesus promised, whom Christ Jesus is each time we come here and we bend our knees and we open our mouths to receive his grace and Holy Communion. And we receive his grace because we need purification. We need reorientation. We need to be turned to face east to see him. We need our disordered affections as we prayed in the college of the day to be purified so that we may behold God's eternal glory in the face of Christ Jesus himself. And so Jesus cleansed his father's house so that we may receive the son's sacrifice. Just as Isaiah 56, 7 tells us that God's holy mountain, the temple mount there in Jerusalem, shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples, including the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord. This parish too, this parish too is called to be a house of prayer. Yet I fear, if I'm honest with you, I fear that in our daily lives, we rob God of the praise that he righteously deserves, and we neglect praying daily. We neglect seeking his counsel through his holy word. That same holy word that we as Americans just take for granted is we have multiple Bibles sitting around our shelves collecting dust. Our failure to serve our Lord reminds me of the reforms of Charles and John Wesley, whose feast day is actually today. Now, I came from the church of John Wesley, but I will die in the church of Charles Wesley because the heart of Methodism Early Methodism, not the Methodism of today, but early Methodism, it dwells within Anglicanism. Because the Wesley brothers and their colleagues, their college friends, they formed a community there at Oxford. What we may even call a small group today, but what they called a cell. A much better word. Because they were a cell in the body of Christ. And this group, they were derogatorily, to me, they were derogatorily called and nicknamed the Holy Club. Or Methodists. Because of their methodical devotion to reforming a rotting and heartless Church of England from within. Sound familiar to anyone? Their movement was one of faithfulness. Faithfulness to dedicate themselves by method to our church's formularies. They devoted themselves to reading the scriptures above all else. To regularly praying together the daily offices of morning and evening prayer. They regularly upheld and taught from the articles of religion. And they constantly read and preached from 
the two books of homilies in our tradition. And unlike many of their time and day, they sought out Holy Communion as often as they could get it. And they lived out their faith by taking care of the poor, by helping the orphan, by going to the needy, by visiting those in prison. My Lord and Savior, I could scarcely think of of what you could do with us, O Lord, if we were as methodical as these Anglicans of old who accidentally gave birth to the Methodist revival in the Church of England. Charles Wesley alone wrote over 6,500, not 650, which is ridiculous enough, over 6,500, 6,500 hymns, dozens of which we regularly sing in this parish and across the world to this day. George Whitfield, one of their other colleagues, he preached to hundreds of thousands of American colonists. Hundreds of thousands. Now, they were reviled by many throughout their lives. They were mocked even more. And they rarely received praise except from those whom they converted to their lives of simple faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's all it takes. Not writing 6,500 hymns, not preaching to hundreds of thousands, but simply being intentional on this life I have is your life, All I can do is what I can before me. And that's what these men did. Small steps of simple faithfulness. So let us keep the main thing, the main thing. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Whereas St. David of Wells, whose feast we celebrated Friday, last told his own disciples before he died, be joyful, keep the faith. And do the little things. Pick up one of the little things this week. Pick up one of the little things in this parish. Be joyful and let us keep the faith. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the podcast for this week. We're expanding our ministries at Church of the Good Shepherd and expanding our space as well in order to better accommodate our growing church family and also to minister to our children. If you feel led to give, please feel free to text the word SHARE to 1-888-364-GIVE. Or additionally, visit us at www.goodshepherdacna.com and go over to the menu item listed Donate to Donate Online. We appreciate any help that you can give, and we hope to see you soon. Come visit us on Sundays at 9 a.m. for Bible study and at 10.30 a.m. for Sunday worship. God bless.